from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Religion for Life. My name is John Schott, religionforlife.com, exploring the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. So what happens when you are a preacher and you leave the pulpit, you leave it all behind? I'm in the midst of a three-part series on ex-preachers. Today, I speak with Pat Green, He's the author of Night Moves, an ex-preacher's journey to hell in a taxi. Taken from his blog called Night Moves, Diary of a Chicago Cabbie Ex-Preacher Man, these are stories of his adventures uh, and the people he has met driving a taxi. From somewhere near Chicago via Skype, welcome, Pat, to Religion for Life. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Well, Tell us, how does a pastor become a cab driver? Uh, Becoming a cab driver is not a job you seek out. It's something that happens to you. Um, During the time that we had our church, for five years it had been running strong, I had gone through a divorce, and I really wasn't handling it very well emotionally. Uh, And instead of trying to deal with my own issues, I was trying to save everybody else's lives. And the center could not hold. The church started falling apart. And financially, I started falling apart. Uh, Even though I had a good resume, I just could not find a job. I was on Monster and all the other usual suspects, uh, putting out 10 to 15 resumes with cover letters a day, networking with 10 or 15 different people every day for four to six hours a day. I would get interviews, but after eight months, I was down to my last $200. Um, lost my apartment, and I found out from a friend of mine that this taxi company was always hiring. So I went in, applied, and the next day I was uh, in training to drive a taxi. So you you had decided, though, when the church kind of went south, that you didn't want to continue in uh, organized religion as a pastor? I had not made that decision yet. Uh, that decision came later after I was in the cab. Um, part of it was driven by, it was the only thing I had known for so many years of my life. And another part of it was driven, frankly, by ego. I wanted to be back. And, um, I wanted to be back leading the charge of progressive ministry in the Will County, Lockport, Joliet area. Um, defending gay rights, defending women's rights, and so on and so forth. Um, But as my understanding of what I used to call the least of these grew in the taxi, my desire to be a participant in organized religion, as I have understood it, went away, as, as did my faith in many respects. So, uh, and you've been a, were a minister, a pastor for, uh, well, what, 15 years or so, weren't you? Yes, on and off for 15 years. In the 90s, I was a youth pastor in the Assemblies of God, and then after that, the uh, Churches of God. Um, Then slowly, I found myself migrating uh, into the Progressive Christian Alliance and um, uh, Describe that just for a second, because that's kind of interesting. What, what, What is the Progressive Christian Alliance? The Progressive Christian Alliance is a very loose association. Uh, A lot of it are people that used to be evangelicals and have found themselves. Now, some of those people are with mainline denominations and are already ordained. Uh, So you've got a lot of people in there that are UCC, that are Methodists, that 
um, maybe Episcopal, that just like gathering there and being part of this alliance. Um, but then you have other people who they created a ordination process for who don't really have anywhere else that they fit in. If you've been an evangelical minister for a number of years, that whole process of starting over in a mainline tradition, for instance, can be either cost or time prohibitive. So they created a mechanism in which you can be ordained and in which you can get uh, not financial support, but a lot of moral support and uh, some governance and guidance. You're a progressive minister, and now you that that ends, and you decide to uh, drive a taxi. So why the night shift? Uh, originally, the night shift was the best opportunity that I could see to spend any time with my child whatsoever. Mm. Um, if I was doing you have a teenage 12, daughter, the traditional, that... yeah, uh, the traditional shift is twelve hours. So if I was working 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., I'd never be able to take my kid to school. I'd never be able to pick her up, take her home, so on and so forth. Um, so this allowed me to lead a very chaotic life in that I would work 6 a.m. to 6 or 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. and then get over to my ex-wife's house where my ex has already left for work, make some breakfast, take the kiddo off to school, and then go back to my old home, sleep on the couch for a couple hours, pick her up from school and then go back to my little place that I, uh, I, I rent a room and um, take a shower, go to work. And you're still driving a cab now, right? Um, not full time. I still get in there once in a while. What I do now, I actually do in-office work. I am training cab drivers and trying to mentor them through their first 30 days. And uh, I also do a little bit of uh, dispatching on the side and, and wear a few other hats. So how much does a cab driver make? Not very much. Uh, it's why you work 60 to 72 hour work weeks. Um, mm. It really depends on the person and the day and the season. At the beginning of the month, everybody is flush with cash. They want to go to the casinos. They want to hit the bars. By the end of the month, they're worried about rent. So that cycle dives. Um, realistically, I made about 400 to $600 a week, and that was working 72-hour work weeks. Whoa. Uh, what your book told me to do is to make sure we always tip the cab driver. Yeah, tips, tips is what you survive on, um, because basically how it works is you lease the taxi. You're an independent contractor, so you get to keep a portion of those fares plus your tips. Now, if you just go by the portion of your fares, if it's a dead night, you will have worked 12 hours for maybe $30 profit. Hmm. Um, but the tips is what gives you the ability to feed yourself, to pay child support, um, to do whatever else it is in life that you need to do. Pat Green is my guest. He's the author of Night Moves, an ex-preacher's journey to hell in a taxi. So, uh, it, and cab drivers are one of the most dangerous jobs, as you, as you write in the book. Uh, and there might have been some stories about close scrapes that didn't make the book. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of stories about close scrapes that didn't make the book. And the reason why I didn't include those is, number one, I did not want to make the violence of the night what the book is about. Uh, number two, I did not want to diminish people who live in lower income circumstances or involved in gang culture by telling those stories. And number three, uh, I told my daughter a story once 
about something scary that had happened to me in a violent nature. And the effect it had was too much, so I didn't want to chance it and include it in a book. Well, tell us about this book. Um, it's uh, 29 chapters, which, uh, tell us, wh- why 29 chapters? Okay, uh, the thing about 29 chapters is I wanted to keep it similar to a driver's log sheet. On a busy night, you can do 24, 25, 29, 30 runs. So each chapter is almost like a fair. And they're very short chapters, so it takes you five to seven minutes to read, which is about the length of an average taxi ride. And those relationships begin, develop, and end very suddenly. In that seven-minute window, you end up with a scrap of their biography. And at the end of the night, you have this patchwork quilt of all of these stories. So each story, each chapter represents a type affair, a specific story, for the most part. And that is reflective of one long night. And in this case, it was the death of one portion of my life, the dusk, into the dawn of a new life. Yeah, so the story is these individual chapters of individual fairs, and yet there is a thread uh, or or two or several uh, that, that run through the whole narrative, aren't there? Oh yeah, yeah. There are some recurring characters. There are some recurring there. There are some recurring characters. There are some recurring themes, and as we get deeper into the book, it gets darker, and as we get towards the end, um, it gets lighter, and especially in the second to the last chapter, you see a confrontation that I have with uh, some progressive emergent mm-hmm. uh, would be urban missionaries, for lack of a better term, who a year and a half ago. I would have been completely in support of, but I found myself protecting the people of Joliet, at least in my mind, from what they had to offer. You write um, about kind of a period of disillusionment near the beginning. Uh, you thought you could, you know, save folks uh, like the woman in the shelter uh, with her child, and then you realized you couldn't. And, and giving up this illusion of control is, is a theme throughout your story, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Giving up the illusion of control, thinking that I was uh, the big damn hero that was going to save everybody's lives. That is something that was very strong in not only my church, but uh, my religious community of my fellow progressives and um, uh, emergent friends. We were going to fix the plight of the gay people. We are going to fix the plight of the minority. We are going to fix the plight of the poor, but we never actually truly get to know them. And we never really understand the problems because we're too busy trying to fix them based on Pew research studies. Mm -hmm. And once you understand the people and try to get personally involved and it fails, it leaves you with a lot of questions and, and a lot of doubts. And eventually you just have to let go and accept you can only do what you can do. Yeah. Would you read a chapter or read a portion of a chapter uh, from your book? Uh, My guest is Pat Green. He's the author of Night Moves, a book that has just been released, Night Moves, An Ex-Preacher's Journey to Hell in a Taxi. All right, this is chapter 18 called The Cowboy. Many senior citizens are not able to drive anymore, but they still have things to do and places to go. Often they use a cab to get to those places if they have lived in Joliet most of their life, They tend to know paths the GPS could never imagine as possible. These shortcuts lower the fare amount for them, and you get to learn a shortcut or two. One day I picked up an elderly gentleman from a small general goods store to take him home. 
He was an old, thin, black man, but he looked younger than he really was. You could tell he was once lean and muscular, and his wraparound sunglasses in the early evening showed his eyes were very sensitive. Lately, the first thing people speak of was the harsh winter. He was no different. You know, young man, you can complain about the weather, or you can just accept it and worry about more important things, he said as he methodically buckled his seatbelt. What would be more important, I asked. Can you get me home before the hour? I don't want to miss Gunsmoke. After Gunsmoke, I have to watch Bonanza. That's important, at least to me. So you like westerns, huh? Son, now that I have time to watch them, I love them. I never had the time when I was younger. Occasionally, we would get to watch a western when I was in World War II, but we were busy doing other things. It was a war, you know. I know, my grandpa was a World War II vet. No kidding, where was he stationed? The Philippines, I said. Me too. What was his name, boy? I smiled and said, Eugene Nabazes. Nope, don't remember them, he said without a pause. He's still around? No, he passed a few years ago. How old are you? Ninety-four. Really? Well, it's hard to tell. What year is it? 2014. I think I'm 94. Not important. My grandkids know these things. Oh, don't you listen to that machine on your window. Turn left here, go three blocks, turn left again. I'll tell you the rest when we get closer. Anyway, I got me the Western Channel. It's the only channel that I watch. Really? Boy, of course, really. I got to pay a lot for that channel. I used to call them and ask if I could just get that channel. They never said yes, so I stopped asking and just pay the bill. I worked hard all my life, and I buried all my friends, my wife, and some kids and grandkids. I'm tired of losing people, so I just watch my westerns. I have time now. Pat Green reading from his book, Night Moves, An Ex-Preacher's Journey uh, to Hell in a Taxi. Uh, and, and that story uh, kind of goes on on which you end up actually going and, and watching a western with him. Yes, we have a conversation about some of our favorite Westerns because I grew up uh, with a love for Louis L'Amour novels and uh, Gunsmoke and uh, The Rifleman. And I used to watch like watching a lot of John Wayne Westerns and uh, I used to love High Noon and so on and so forth. So we just had this common bond there. And then he asked me if I wanted to come in and watch Gunsmoke with him. And I told him, no, I had to go to work. But the very next day I came over with um, a copy of the uh, Jeff Bridges Western. Um, and the next day we watched it together and it was a delightful and bittersweet time. Uh, even though he is much older than me, he did not want to forge a friendship because he just assumes he's going to outlive everybody and watch more people around him die. Yeah, he even even mentioned that that you, because being a hack, a name for a cab driver, doesn't have necessarily a long lifespan to it. Right, right. And, and unfortunately, that's true. Uh, my first year in this job, we lost three drivers, one of wow. which I write about in the book. Yeah. And there really is a community of cab drivers, isn't there? Uh, there is. There is. Um, we don't realize it and we don't acknowledge that it's there until the chips are down and something goes wrong in someone's life. Uh, then it becomes apparent that it's always been there, it always is, it always will be, and it's extremely strong. Well, and we look out for each other. Yeah, yeah. What have you learned most about people, um, people who are out in the night, uh, that community, or, or people in general uh, with this, um, with your experience driving a cab at night? 
I've learned a couple of things. One of the most important things is that we need to see each other equally. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a Christian, you use the term Imago Dei, image of God. If you're of Eastern religions, you'll go Namaste, I see the divinity within you. If you're an atheist, you will say that we are all made of common stardust. Um, the change of dynamic from being somebody who is trying to uh, stop human trafficking and run that dialogue to hoping that the hooker in the back seat gives me a tip, that change in the dynamic of the mm -hmm. relationship forced me real fast to see that person as an equal, to understand them. And in understanding them, I begin to find out how little I actually know about them. Um, the other thing that I learned is that we can't pretend that we have the ability to be a big hero and solve people's problems until we see them as a friend and an equal and not a rescue puppy. Would you say that you were more of a pastor now uh, than when you did it professionally? I wouldn't use the word pastor. I mm -hmm. would say I'm more of a minister now than I was before. What's the difference? Um, not by textbook definitions, but a pastor in today's context is more like the CEO of a church who's in charge. Okay. It, it's it's become very industrialized in that term. Um, I know that's not the dictionary definition. I know that that is not the scriptural definition, but that's what we think of when we think of that word. The guy, um, the guy who minister, runs the show. Yeah. Right. Okay. A minister is somebody who just ministers, reaches out, and touches those around them in any way that they can. And, uh, but along with that comes a humility in my own part that I need to be ministered to, that sometimes I need to swallow my pride and accept a gift card from somebody so that I can go out and take my kid to a pizza place. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, in terms of that, of just, just as reading your stories of your connection, uh, with people hearing their stories, do you, do you talk to most of the fairs, the fo folks who get in the cab? I try to talk to pretty much everybody. You learn to get a read. There are some people that would prefer not to have a conversation and they would prefer to be more engaged in their iPhone uh, or their book or whatever else. They, they don't want that conversation. So you have to respect that boundary. Uh, and you have about three seconds to get a read as to whether this person wants to have a conversation or whether or not they don't. Um, but if they are willing to engage... I do for a couple of reasons. Number one, if they are the most interesting person in the cab, I hate to sound Machiavellian, but it will improve your tip. Uh -huh. uh, number two, um, doing this for 12 hours without a conversation would get pretty doggone lonely. Yeah, right. And you really made some connections with with, with these people. And, and, and the, the thing is that you make a connection, you may never see them again. And sometimes you do see them again. But nonetheless, their stories become uh, a part of your concern, your your circle of compassion. Well, yes, yes. Uh, the, the indomitable Miss, N Miss N, mm -hmm. uh, the indomitable noble Miss N, who I write about in, I believe, chapter two or, or chapter three, she is still somebody who is a part of my life who is still drawing pictures for my kid, and my kid is drawing pictures for her. And that relationship and that dynamic still continues. And uh, there is a uh, young lesbian girl who every once in a while I'll bump into at the mall or a burger joint or wherever else you'll see teens gathered. 
Uh, so some of these people have become integral parts of my life. And it really was a change from your old life to the new. Sometimes people uh, from your old church or your old acquaintances uh, you'll find in the cab. Yes. And um, I wish I could say those were always good encounters. Unfortunately, most of the time they are not. Um, and that was another hard part for me to swallow. Uh, whenever I was dealing with some of my either mainline or progressive friends, and I was taking them or picking them up, actually more realistically picking them up from places that they ought not to be, hmm. that whole Matthew 25 paradigm where you say that you want to heal the sick and feed the hungry and so on and so forth, that becomes a load of malarkey when you speak about the love and compassion need to change it, but without them, you would have no place to get your, um, how do I say this, to get your blow or your b- I, I apologize. Um, that's, when you need them to get your fix, you're uh-huh. not being completely genuine about fixing their issues. Gotcha. So you've no, you found right, right away the hypocrisy. And it was, the, but the thing is, it was a hypocrisy that I would have loved and enjoyed if mm. it was an evangelical or if it was a right-wing Republican alderman. But when it was somebody who was quote unquote from my camp, mm. right? who I looked up to, who was a mentor, and then they either tip me very generously for uh, silence or they try to threaten me into silence. That's difficult. And that's unfortunately happened a few times. As I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I could do this. Uh, this, this there are a lot of decisions you have to make on the minute, scary situations. H- how did you uh, drum up the courage to do this job? I was down to my last $200. It wasn't about courage. It was about survival. Okay. It really was. Um, courage came later. Um, some of the drivers, uh, you see in the book, I mentioned in driver, Mike a lot. He's a retired truck driver, tough as nails, grew up in the South side of Chicago. His uncle ran an Irish bar. Uh, he was a good mentor for staying safe and staying alive in sticky situations and how to stay out of those situations. I also had to come to grips with the fact that, uh, I always thought myself in the Franciscan ethos of being a pacifist, but whenever I had to defend myself, I found out that lethal force was something that I could be very comfortable using. And that I never killed anyone, but the fact that that potential existed within, within me and it was instinctual was a hard coming to terms of my ideals versus my realities. Pat Green is my guest on Religion for Life. He's the author of Night Moves, an ex-preacher's journey to hell in a taxi. A journey to hell, is, uh, is, is that just where you went, or is there more places? No. Um, I came into the dawn of a new existence yeah. where I didn't have to worry about heaven and hell anymore that life is just life and it happens in the moment and all I have is this moment. I spent so much time beating myself up over the failure of my marriage, the failure of the church and everything else. And I was afraid of what tomorrow would bring and I always miss today. 
And today can be as beautiful or as horrific as I want it to be. And sometimes it is both at the same time. Um, I found a new heaven, for lack of a better term, just getting to know the beauty that exists within people in the darkness of the night. I was going to ask you how you describe your philosophy. Maybe you just did. Uh, would you would would you call yourself now an atheist? I would have to use the term an agnostic atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, I'm not one who is making a claim that there is no God. I make no claim. Okay, um, but you're 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 you you have gone through a, a journey of faith or philosophy, though, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I don't really care to engage in the religious culture anymore. I don't mm-hmm. really care to engage in God and the Bible anymore. And, and, and at first it was painful uh, dealing with that change, but it became freeing and releasing because now when something bad happens in my life, I don't have to question where things went wrong in the system. Did I do something wrong? Did God allow this? Is there some sort of lesson? No. Sometimes the test is just positive and it's a bad day. Yeah. You, uh, you're you still writing. Uh, your blog is uh, nightmovescab.blogspot.com. Uh, the book is Night Moves, an ex-preacher's journey to hell in a taxi. But what I got from reading you was that it created a great open space for others to be able to um, share their stories, their doubts, and, and so forth. Yes, yes. Um, and, and, and a couple things, there's a couple projects that I would like to pursue. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these projects require time and money, but uh, uh, one thing that I, I'm trying to do is I'm working with Ryan Bell on some ideas as to how to help people exist within that liminal space uh, where they're struggling between faith and faithlessness mm-hmm. um, and to give them permission to feel safe in, in a space and just process um, I'm also trying to find opportunities to have other people who work in a night shift tell their stories, the EMTs, the guy who works at the donut shop, the cop, the prostitute. Um, after the bars close and before dawn rises, the world is just us. It's our city. Um, and, uh, and I'm also trying to find opportunities to do other writings. I mean, this first book, is it a great American classic? No, but it's a good story, and, and, and I hope it's a story that gets listened to, and I hope it's a story where people pay less attention to me and more attention to the people that I fell in love with. Well, it is an excellent story, and I uh, would advise people to pick it up. Night Moves, an ex-preacher's journey to hell in a taxi. Uh, how can people get your book? Uh, the first place they can go on is if they have an Amazon Kindle or the Kindle app is they can go to uh, Amazon.com and look up Night Moves uh, the, by Pat Green. And the other way that they can do it is they can um, contact me directly. Uh, and they can actually do that by going through my blog. I have an email address and contact me section in there. And I will be more than happy to uh, send them an autographed copy. Uh, All-inclusive, including shipping and handling, is $21 for that. Or you can contact uh, the publisher direct right now, who is at um, Aquarius-Atlanta.com. And the blog is nightmovescab.blogspot.com. Pat Green, my guest on Religion for Life. Pat, uh, thank you for sharing your story, and thanks for being with me today on Religion for Life. It has definitely been an honor. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schock. Religionforlife.com is the place to go to find more information about the show as well as links to podcasts. You can go and download podcasts, send them to friends, find us on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, soon Stitcher. We're everywhere. Religion for Life is also heard on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee. It is free to stations, and Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be welcome.